In this episode of Agentic Shift, we talk to Chris Goward, Managing Director of Wider Funnel, Conversion Rate Optimization, an experimentation agency founded in Vancouver, Canada. Chris tells us how he got fired from an agency for being too scientific, what he considers the five levers of success in CRO, why test results are often counterintuitive, why he believes in the hedgehog principle, why he looks for mavericks with grit when he is hiring team members, and he explains Thursday awesomes and awfuls. Enjoy the show. Chris, thank you for joining us today on Agentic Shift. Well, thanks for the invitation. It's great to see you again. Yeah, great to see you too. Maybe what we can start with is your founder story. How did Wider Funnel come to be? Yeah, it was a little bit random, a little bit of luck. I was working at large agencies for quite a few years, mainly in the direct response, email marketing, direct mail. And I found that in the big agencies at the time, this was in the early 2000s, I really didn't fit culturally or philosophically. Honestly, I hated my job. I, I just didn't. I was really interested in measurement and learning and the scientific method for some reason. And the agencies just didn't value that. So there was a at one point I was downsized. I, we lost a big client at the agency and I was in a really tough place. I had just bought a house. I had two kids in diapers. I was covered in asbestos renovating this thing. And so, but I knew I didn't want to be in that position again, working at a job I hated for someone else in a culture I didn't like. So I, at one point I saw an opportunity to, with this technology that would allow, enable AB testing on websites. And I'd never seen that this was possible before. And I thought this is mind blowing because I really believed that I could make better performing experiences than the big agencies were doing. At the time they were making like these flash based websites, right? Trying to recreate the golden age of TV. Uh, online. And I thought there had to be a better way. So I ended up, that's kind of how Wider Funnel was birthed to resell this technology and build the experiences that would prove better ways of designing websites with the business's goals in mind, not just some flashy experience. So you said you were at a a big agency and they didn't appreciate scientific method, A-B testing. It feels kind of crazy. I mean, I get the fact that like big agencies want to win awards at con for creative. But would you go into a meeting and say, hey, we should test whether this improves conversion rate? And people are like, eh, I don't think that colors don't work for me. We're just not going to do it. I and mean, what was that like? Yeah, well, and that's exactly what it was like it, in the direct response area. We, I felt like the bastard stepchild of the, you know, in the, in the basement. They, nobody cared what we were learning with all of this experimentation that we were doing. And all the budgets, they would, and they would talk about being data driven. Of course, they would talk about results oriented because everyone wants to talk about that but when it actually came down to it the budgets would all flow into the black turtlenecks around the boardroom that were selling razzle dazzle and going to strip clubs with the clients to try to get them to sign the checks and it really wasn't about what was empirically or objectively good for the client or the brand i was actually just on linkedin this morning and there was an article i have to admit i didn't read the article i just saw the headline and it said tropicana lost 30 million dollars with a bad redesign. And it showed a before and after picture of a Tropicana orange juice can, orange juice container. And the first one was what you sort of know as Tropicana, this like flowing orange juice. And the second one looked like something out of a, I don't know, like a postmodern art exhibit. It was this like just weird cubist sort of, and it just totally sucked all of the life out of the original design. And I was just thinking like, I'm sure what happened was some agency creative people just spent months ideate, ideating and they never bothered to sort of 
really figure out whether this was going to improve performance for Tropicana. And then here we are 30 million dollars later and they're they've got egg on their face or orange juice on their face. <laughs> well, and that's typical. And I, maybe I, I was a little bit uh, jaded, but it seemed to me that a lot of these creative teams were really just failed artists who couldn't sort of make a go at it with their, yeah, their postmodern idea of art. And so they ended up in agencies, but they hated it too. Like they didn't want to be doing that. They wanted to do some really cool, clever stuff and yeah, to, to go to con and have Rosé on the beach. And, but it wasn't about the actual, like they didn't care about business and getting results, of course. Yeah. Someone told me that in Los Angeles, if you go to any creative agency, there's dozens of videographers who came to LA to be directors of fine films and now are, now are filming diaper commercials, whatever. So, I mean, with this, with this, this in mind, you want, you saw there was an opportunity to actually bring direct response to companies. What's the elevator pitch today for the company? Because partly I would say there are your, the field that you're in, whether it's user experience, conversion optimization, it's a pretty mature field now. I, I think that's not to say that every company embraces it, but there are a lot of companies that do embrace it. And there are a lot of agencies that do it. So what's the elevator pitch for Water Funnel today? Yeah, it's true. We were early on. I mean, we were building the industry before conversion optimization was a term. It didn't exist. And at the time when we started, I really did. I kind of stumbled into something because I didn't have a background in analytics, believe it or not, at all. And so I actually came into doing this from a different perspective than most. And yeah, the, I mean, every digital agency now says conversion optimization, they've got it on, listed on their website. But what we've done from the beginning is think a little bit differently, a, truly a combination of art and science where we're designing experiences, we're all about the user and taking the user's perspective. And measurement is just a way of proving what works better. We're not coming from an analytics perspective or from a media perspective or from a metric ROAS, whatever it is perspective. We're really trying to understand the user and how people want to consume information and how they want to act. And it's a, about behavior, human behavior, and really researching what makes people different. So I guess in terms of an elevator pitch, what Wider Funnel does is from the beginning, we focused on the one thing that we could be the best in the world at which is to run experimentation programs at scale that get better results faster and more consistently. And we don't do anything else. We don't get into media buying and big ad creative and all of that stuff. So we end up focusing on that. And because of that, so we, we deliver basically three services. One is full service experimentation. So we're an outsourced experimentation arm for a lot of major brands, Microsoft, HP, the Googles, Unilever. I mean, we're doing that focused on that full service experimentation from design to implementation to analytics. Second is consulting on experimentation programs. So at large scale companies, they run into predictable barriers to the scale of their insight velocity. So we have methodologies for identifying those barriers and removing them so that their insight velocity can increase. And then third is a tool that we've built for managing experimentation programs at scale. So it's a project and insight management tool for designing and running experimentation programs. It doesn't do the A-B testing on websites. There's plenty of off-the-shelf tools that do that. This is about understanding and planning and managing the insights about consumers and why they act. So you don't make the same mistakes or rerun the same experiments a dozen times. Is, is that a tool that's like a global tool, like you're aggregating data across many clients? And so you, a new client comes to you and they say, we're going to create a 40 form field and you're like, nope, the tool says that anything over four fields is not going to work. Or is it for the client individually? 
No, that's exactly right. So yeah, the tool's called LiftMap and clients can use the tool for their own experimentation, like to managing their program. And then we're able to look on aggregate at all of the thousands of experiments and they're all the experiments are tagged. And so we can do meta analysis of for this type of user experience at this point in the process, what are the major elements that are likely to work better? What are of all the hundreds of experiments or thousands, which behavioral cognitive biases tend to move the needle, which design elements tend to move the needle. All of those things are kind of starting to get uh, profiled or built into patterns that we can see. That's very cool. That's great. One thing I want to ask you about, I guess, conversion rate agencies or optimization. I always think of the SEO world where a company hires an SEO agency and the SEO agency comes back and says, here are 30 changes you need to make. And the development team is like, yeah, we don't have time to do all that. We have another priority that's due next month. So they end up not making any of the changes. And then three months later, the SEO team gets fired, agency gets fired. And it's like, why'd you fire us? Well, we didn't see any results. Well, you didn't implement any of the changes. I mean, is that a problem with people who hire CRO or usability? I mean, is that something you encounter? Absolutely. It's one of the top or sort of the five categories that we look at. Process, accountability, culture, expertise, and technology. And often it's either a technology problem where they just can't implement things or it's an expertise problem. They don't have the resources to be able to do what they need to do or process. They're just bogged down because they've got all this bureaucracy and they don't have the right levers or authorities in place. So all of that stuff is becomes a problem. And so that's exactly what we do with trying to relieve those barriers by inserting the resources they need or taking over components of it. And so when we run experiments, we try to avoid that by doing the full service. So we've always controlled the experimentation process completely from end to end, which includes having access to run experiments without having the need to go through their internal technology and, and IT departments, right? So that we can prove, okay, well, here's the increased revenue that you'll get from implementing this result. Now it's up to you. I mean, this is a very clear business case, right? Because everything you do is statistically significant. We can see what revenue impact, but even once we've made the case, okay, here's a $10 million improvement to your business. Would it make sense to hire a developer to implement that? <laughs> Sometimes even that's still a hard case to make. And so we'll try to find ways around it. But a lot of times those are political barriers that uh, are really interesting to overcome. Yeah. there's. I always think of that oatmeal cartoon where the guy says he wants a new website and he says, whatever you guys, you think is best, let's do it. And the guy come, and the web center comes back with this awesome website really clean. And the guy's like, well, you know what? I think let's change this font. Also, I need some flying cats and I need a flash banner at the bottom. And pretty soon at the end of it, it's just a complete monstrosity because the guy, because the client said he wanted change, but really he just wanted to implement his own things. So yeah. And we've gone through, of course, you'd be shocked at how many, oh, here's a, a winning result. Uh, I don't really like it. Let's go back to the other one. But we tend to filter that out pretty early now with uh, making sure that there's a commitment to having a culture of sort of insight-driven decisions. Yeah, that we're, we're, oh, go ahead. Yeah, no, I should say we're very fortunate now. We've got amazing clients that really do want this and they, they're bought into this as a strategy. So we've got pretty free reign in a lot of cases to do some, what we think is the right thing to do. Yeah, that's awesome. So you wrote a book a couple of years ago that I want to mention because it has the best title ever. And actually, I mean, in some respects, you could say if you just read the title and implemented it, you would solve... 90% of the challenges in user testing, but the name of the book is You Should Test That. And so maybe can you just explain to us the, the what that means and how it's applicable? 
Yeah, so I wrote the book really in the early days of Wider Funnel. We were shockingly having to sell the idea that testing is important to know what works, right? And today it's kind of accepted practice, but I wrote the book, You Should Test That, because there were, I was afraid of where the industry was going. I could see that some of the old habits of agencies were coming, starting to have an influence to say, well, conversion optimization doesn't really need testing. Like we'll tell you what we, the best practices and that, and this is what you should implement. And I, and so I kind of got on my soapbox there for a few years to say, no, like you have to be testing to know what works. And that's really where the book came from when I was kind of sort of screaming in the shadows of the industry saying, no, you should test that. Like this is, you have to test your ideas. And I think that I don't want to take credit for that as a concept. It's not like a new idea, but um, it's great to see that there is so much experimentation happening today in all aspects of marketing that maybe we've had some small influence in in, uh, inspiring. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think it's, I use it all the time. I use that quote all the time. Because as you said, there's so much politics in companies, just the, the nature of people. And then we have the whole concept of the hippo, the highest paid person's opinion. And I often find myself having been a leader in the organization as sometimes just talking about what I think should be done or shouldn't be done. And then I remind myself, I was like, wait a minute, it's not my opinion that matters. It's the results that matter. So, and I get clients all the time saying, well, we're thinking about adding this or that. And I always say, you should test that, set up an A-B test. So it really is the best advice you can give to anyone. I mean, just take the emotion out of it, take the politics out of it, take the, the hierarchy out of it, come up with a test, run it, and let the results dictate what you do. For sure. Yeah. No, and I appreciate you've been always been an advocate of that for sure as well in, in the industry. And that's been helpful. And it doesn't have to be complicated. Sometimes experimentation can seem daunting because it's you're talking about the scientific method and marketers eyes blaze over, but it's really not hard to run a test in a lot of cases. Yeah. I've always said that marketing is really just a bunch of zeros and ones. I mean, it really is just about data. Anything you do can be boiled down to data. And as we talked about earlier in this conversation, I mean, when you start to just sort of go off the rails and just do what you feel seems right, because you have an aesthetic that you really like, and you don't put any data behind it. A broken clock is right twice a day. You might actually get it right. But in a lot of cases, you'll get it wrong. You'll feel really good about how beautiful it is, but it won't drive results. So, Well, yeah. And the thing that a lot of times people think about A-B testing, experimentation, conversion optimization as being like tweaking around the edges. But the other side of it is that it can actually allow you to make bolder strategic moves too. Because if you know that you're going to be testing what you're doing, then you can have a little bit more leeway to be a little bit more gutsy and innovative. And so it doesn't have to just be incremental. In fact, the best companies are testing dramatic changes in all areas of their business. Yeah, I've actually thought about this. I've thought maybe the right approach to testing is to start with big, bold changes. So just to do a completely polar opposite experience. And then when you find that one side works by the other, then over time, you start to get the minute changes to that experience. But you start with something big, and then you go down from there. Yeah, there's a lot of value to that. We tend to take a kind of a hybrid approach where we're testing big changes that also included include variations that have very isolated insights so that we can both swing for the fences and learn something from a small isolation that's important to the customer. Because there's value in both, getting those big wins and also learning something. Absolutely. Do you have a good example, maybe without revealing a client's name, of a test that you did that you're particularly proud of or something that 
like some test that just shocked you and had amazing transformative results for a company? Well, there are so many. And now because we've gotten into testing so many areas of the business, it's I think some of the things that are really interesting to see are experiments like right with directly within product or within business strategy. So surprising offers or things that you would think should work in terms of messaging, upgrade options, all of those kind of things that can have counterintuitive effects. I mean, there's one that's come to mind that I don't think it's be hard to, to share without revealing too much about the business. But there's some that even things like I remember early on adding so often the, the the best practice is you shouldn't ask more information than you need because it can be adding complexity to a process it never works. But some kinds of information, if you ask it, can actually imply something that that's helpful for the person to understand. So in a sign up form, we asked for an email address and that was it. And then in another variation, we asked for an email address and a zip code. And you would think that wouldn't help. But what it actually implied, we found out later, is that it's the result they're going to get is going to be customized to their location. And so that personalization implication actually persuaded people to go through the process or to, or to start in on the sign up process. So sometimes asking the right kind of information that has an implication can be helpful. And those are the little hints that we find thousands of these that are really interesting to Take the next step and try to understand, ask why, why did this actually work better? Not just take the result and run, but what might be, what might this result imply about the customer's behavior and and their understanding of the process they're going through? That's really interesting. It's almost like you're, by asking that question, you're creating a promise to the customer that you're going to give them tailored results and that increases conversion rate. Right. And so that's that's counterintuitive because usually you say you shouldn't put a field in, in a form unless it's absolutely vital, right? Right. And that's kind of how I think all of the difference that we do in the experiments that we run, we don't use tips and tricks. We don't have like cheat sheets of here are all the tactics that work. What we're actually doing is flipping it completely and thinking, okay, what is the user's experience here? From a behavioral science perspective, how do we craft an experience that hits all of the right things that they're, answers the questions they're asking, hits their emotional centers, and then the tactics kind of fall out of that, not the other way around. And then in the results analysis, that's even more important to say, okay, why did this work? And how could what could we imply from that? And what could it feed into that we could test next about this user? That's a great point. I mean, in other words, like getting results that win and then not asking the question why is only half of the equation, basically. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a hugely overlooked area of the experimentation process. It's really digging into the results analysis and doing, that's where we do our analytics is after post-experiment is drilling into all of the different variables of how people acted within each of these variations and pulling out the insights on, oh, that's interesting. Why did a person bounce back and forth on this variation and not that one? What does that imply about what they're looking for and how can that feed into the next round? That's really cool. So let me transition with that point to your team and the company's values. I mean, I guess the first question is, how do you hire people? How do you find people who are going to think that way? What's your hiring process? Yeah, so our hiring process has evolved to be quite, what do you say, rigorous, I guess. So we do, we use data in the hiring process, in screening, looking for the types of characteristics that we look for. So with each of the roles, 
we have profiles for the kind of people, their background, their aptitudes, the way they work that tend to work best. And we use tools like, I don't know if you're familiar with predictive index where, yeah. It's like a Myers-Briggs kind of thing. (laughs) Yeah. It's kind of like a a quick screening thing that looks at, at work style. And then we have work style profiles that match each of the roles that we have. And, you know, we're always validating that too, revalidating whether different profiles could actually fit. But so that's part of it. But a lot of it is that we're looking for people that have a demonstrated history of living our values that have a growth mindset versus a victim mindset, right? They're proactive in looking for solutions. And of course, all the things that everyone else is looking for too, right? Optimistic, positive, happy people, all that kind of stuff. But within the framework of they need to get it, want it, and have capacity. So you need to understand the role. They need to have demonstrated desire that this is where they want to go. And then they have the capacity to really over-deliver and have the intelligence and the aptitude and the fit. Sounds like you're using the entrepreneur's operating system since you just mentioned. Yeah, we use the. <laughs> yeah, we use EOS. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> as well. So let me ask you this, because so I love EOS, by the way. But you said hiring for a demonstrated experience of living our values. So tell me what the values are, and then tell me how do you ferret out that someone's living that one of those values? Yeah, so that's part of the art of the interviewing process. So we use top grading as well as an interview process, and within the top grading interviews, we're looking for how they make decisions and how they handle situations. And so we want to see that they are they tend to be using the our core values. And we use our core values every day in how we make decisions. So we have five core values, uh, grit, integrity, maverick, curiosity, and real. So we want to look for grit. Like, do they persevere through obstacles or do they just sit down and wait for someone else to solve it, right? Integrity for us means we do what's best for our clients and each other. Do they show integrity or are they more self-oriented? And I just had an interview this past week where they made it through a couple stages, but I kind of felt that, well, I'm seeing a lot more self-interest than others' interest. And so that's an immediate mix. And Maverick, daring to challenge old ideas, right? Are they curious? Are they trying to change how things are done? Curiosity is continuous improvement. Like, do they demonstrate that they are learning always? And then real is one that we actually added last a few years ago and realized that that's really a core foundation for how we operate is seeking and sharing truth with humility. And we really need our, well, in the culture that we've created, we have open, transparent communication and we have sort of artifacts around this and structures for, for example, we have afternoon on Thursday afternoon, we have our Thursday awesomes where we all kind of come together. We have beer taps and of course it's uh, every good tech company does now. But but what we do is we go around and we share what was awesome from our week or awful. It can be awesomes or awfuls and it's both personal and business. So we bring our whole selves to kind of share with each other and really bring those kind of transparent connections. I assume that over the last couple of years, you've been mostly remote. So how has that changed the vibe of the Thursday awesomes and awfuls? Yeah, that has been, frankly, a challenge. It's really impacted that. And so we're bringing people back into the office now and trying to spark that again. And there are a lot of people that we've hired since then that have never experienced that. So culture is such a difficult thing to maintain because everyone who comes and goes has an impact. And so, again, that's why hiring is so important. But I found, I realized early on well, fairly early on, it was it took me an embarrassingly long time actually to realize it, that my job was to create the culture and to create a great experience. And so once I kind of realized that, I started becoming much more intentional about 
about putting these structures in place. So to answer your question, yeah, it has been difficult. There's nothing similar about a Zoom awesomes meeting as an in-person one, and I don't like it. (laughs) So we're trying as much as possible to create more of the in-person connections now. When you talk about yourself as a leader and how you realize that you have to be intentional about that, I mean, can you talk a little bit more detail about how that has manifested itself? In terms of leadership? Yeah. I mean, how did you change? I mean, when you, I mean, obviously just paying attention and saying, I'm going to make sure that I live the core values, but what else did you do to sort of make sure that you were the guiding light that you wanted to be? Yeah. Well, so yeah, again, I didn't understand this early on and I was very sort of functional. Like I was kind of a backroom strategist, just sort of like designing the experience of the business. And I didn't really clue into the people connection for a while, but I remember there was a time when I ended up meeting a few people locally through different aspects. I I don't remember how, it must've been networking connections or I don't know if it was biz dev or whatever, but there were a few people that I met who all had a shared experience of having worked at a company that had then disbanded. So it was a few years ago. And, but they all seemed to have similar stories of looking back at this as like a really amazing experience. It was like that kind of touchstone in their career. And it kind of inspired me at that point where I said, thought to myself, why couldn't we create something like that? Where this will be a cultural and experience that every one of our team members will look back as a special time in their career. And since then, I've always kind of kept that in mind. It's been something that I've wanted to create. Like, can we create something that special that people just love it so much? And that has, like, it shifted my mindset into how I make decisions. It's always people first now. Like, I, I care more about the people than the outcome of the business. It, so I'm always trying to make decisions that are in their best interest. And sometimes it comes back to bite me in the ass because there's always going to be some people that will take advantage of that. But, and that's in some ways, I think, been difficult when I feel like some people don't really appreciate what we're trying to do. But I think it's been worth it in the end. I, I have a team of leaders that I really love and that we really care for each other and do what's best for each other. So in the end, hopefully that that's, hopefully we've done that for a few people, given them that special experience. Yeah, that's wonderful. I wrote an article a couple of years ago about uh, Glassdoor reviews and because I was noticing that like, I think 3Q's Glassdoor review is around 4.1, 4.2 out of 5 right now. I was sort of in the, in the article, I was thinking like, well, if you really actually don't want to strive for a 5 out of 5, because if you do that, it means that you're not really challenging people and you're optimizing too much for just whatever someone, whatever someone's happy with that, that on that day. You really want to have like a four, or I, I maybe self, self-serving, but you want to have like a four, 4.5, because that means that you're building something people can be proud of. But you're also at sometimes there's some people who are just not a fit. And to your point, there's going to be people, people who complain no matter what. I mean, you can right. give someone a half million dollar raise. And they're still going to say, well, I wanted a $600,000 raise. So anyways, I guess when you said that you've tried your best to make everyone feel like this is a touchstone experience and some people you just can't get through to, I mean, part of that I think is, should be by design. They just, it just wasn't a fit for them or they weren't a fit for the company. And part of that is the nature of people that you'll never make everyone happy. Yeah, it's true. And it's just like any relationship. Often you don't know what a person's made of for until you're a few months or a year into it. And if it comes to be a poor fit or they're looking for something different or they just don't buy into that values. Sometimes, yeah, the, the separation can be 
painful or they're you have to challenge someone in a way that they don't they're not ready to step up to and and frankly like we're going to make mistakes along that road too I, you know we have no illusions of thinking that we're perfect in how we've done everything so but we're always trying to learn and improve in how we're doing it the intentions there absolutely so last question for you is if you were going to give it advice to someone starting an agency today i mean both of us were sort of gray hairs we're in our late 20s i think now yeah something like that there. Yeah. yeah if you had to give advice to someone starting an agency today what would you say well i would say well i guess first of all don't do it run sure? run yeah <laughs> are you sure this is what you want to do <laughs> you know how much pain is coming <laughs> but i guess beyond that i think there's some things that i was fortunate to do right it, whether or not i actually knew that it was going to turn out I took good advice. So I think reading everything I possibly could was helpful to be able to triangulate on different perspectives, most importantly. So trying to read from people I disagree with and people I agree with and people that might be outside the industry or inside and have different things. And there's going to be, there are going to be different opinions on every aspect of strategy. And so I think the first thing is to really focus on trying to define what the strategy is and then stick to it and say, no, this is my thesis. This is what I'm trying to build. So for example, I, in the early days of Wider Funnel, it was hard to find uh, revenue consistently because no one had experimentation as a budget line item. Like no one had A-B testing in their budgets. And we were selling the category. We we're selling like, no, you need to be experimenting. You have to do this. And they're like, well, where am I going to get the budget from? I'm like, well, <laughs> here's the numbers. Here's how it makes it. So we had to sell that. But, and so it would have been very tempting to take easy revenue that was outside of what I wanted to build. There were opportunities to take SEO projects or web design projects or things that were outside of experimentation, but I decided early on to focus. And I said, no, I, yeah, I don't remember who, where I got this idea, but, but the concept of, it was probably Jim Collins or something, the concept of having the hedgehog principle, right? Focusing on the one thing you can be best in the world at. And, so I was disciplined to say, I only will take on clients that will hire us only for experimentation, that have the traffic so that we can run a lot of experiments and learn from those experiments so that we can improve our service. And anything outside of that is just going to be a waste of time and is going to distract us from the work that we have to do, which is primarily improving our process and our results. And so I didn't focus on revenue and growth at first. I mean, we had to be profitable and we had to stay in business, but it was about building that one thing. So I would say in any agency, you've got to find the the niche, the thing that you want to focus on to be best in the world at and just double down on doing that every single day. So I think that's the most important thing. And with from that, there are a lot of different strategic decisions that come out of it, whether you're specializing in verticals or horizontals and or industries or service types or whatever it is, but picking that strategy and sticking to it. That's fantastic advice. And I just add two things to that. One is I think what you're talking about is the difference between good revenue and bad revenue. And early on, I think a lot of people, and understandably, when you're a struggling neophyte agency and you're just trying to pay the bills, it's very tempting to take some business that's either going to be not profitable or that's going to be out of your wheelhouse and you're going to get overwhelmed and provide bad results. Those are both examples of bad revenue. So I think that's a great point. I think the other thing you mentioned about how you were selling the, the category before the category was mature. I have this concept that I call the arc of internet marketing channel adoption. And there's three stages. The first stage is no one cares, no one spends any money. So it's like, maybe, I don't know, like 
advertising in the metaverse <laughs> right now. The second stage is everyone cares, no one spends any money. So you get the keynote, but no one has budget. And then the third phase is no one cares, everyone has spends money. So it's no longer the hot, sexy thing, but it's in everyone's budgets. And that's when you actually <laughs> drive success. So you were there in stage one, and now you're in stage three. Right. It's a, yeah, it sort of reminds me of the Gartner hype cycle where all these technologies are, no one cares about it or understands it. And then suddenly everyone's interested and wants it and it's overinflated expectations. And then it hits the trough of disillusionment where people realize, oh, it's not going as easy as they think. Right. But and the then irony suddenly... is in our industry, the trough of disillusionment in my model is where you make the money because suddenly people are like, it's like, I mean, I was in SEM. That's my expertise. Like no one wants a keynote on search engine marketing today. Right. But everyone has a budget for it. So. I'm not going to get a, the CMO is not going to take me out to dinner to learn what match type Google is recommending today, but they're going to sign a big check. So trough of disillusionment for someone, but not for the agencies. <laughs> no. And it's, yeah, it's where it's, I agree with you. It's where you can make you, where you make the money because you can actually bring uh, reality to that method, right? To that strategy where it's not, they, people realize that's where they have pain, right? People realize, oh, it's much more difficult than I was promised by the technology vendors or whatever it was, or the, the media giants. And we actually have to build some expertise. Oh, in comes the agency that actually has expertise and value to add to bring you up to that kind of ongoing value. Product market fit, as they say in Silicon Valley. Yeah. <laughs> well, Chris, thank you so much. This is great. Uh, congrats on the success of Wider Funnel. And thanks again for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks, David. Likewise, uh, always great to talk to you. Yeah, absolutely. A new episode of Agentic Shift drops every Wednesday. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform or visit agenticshift.com to see the latest episode.